Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Hello and welcome to the Project Zion podcast. I'm your host, Carla Long, and today you're listening to Percolating on Faith, where we talk about all kinds of matters of theology and faith and all kinds of good stuff. I'm here with, of course, your favorite guests, Charmaine and Tony Shavala-Smith. Hello, Charmaine. Hello, Tony. Hi, Carla. Always a delight. Hi, Carla. Good to be here. Always. Aren't I just delightful every time? We think so. (laughs) Showing up, Carla. Uh, So today we're going to be talking about Epiphany, which happens around January 6th, January 7th. And before I started studying theology and stuff, I really didn't even know much about what happened around January 6th, January 7th. As soon as Christmas is over on December 25th at noon, we're taking down our Christmas tree. My mom never let us leave that Christmas tree up. Like she was over it. Like Christmas is over. The season is over. Let's move on. And then I became the mission center financial officer for Western and Eastern Europe And I got an email from one of our workers there. And she said, just so you know, we'll be taking January 6th and 7th off because it's Christmas. Luckily, I didn't write back. No, it's not. Stop trying to take days off. (laughs) I looked it up. And of course, it is a Christmas for the Orthodox Church. So there's a lot of stuff happening around January 6th, January 7th in the Christian calendar. And I think it's cool that we're talking about it because I don't know how many people know about it. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Yeah. And a cool thing you might not know is that in the ancient church, Christmas was a latecomer, but Epiphany was there already in the fourth century, and it was considered a major feast. So, yeah, the three major feasts um, were Epiphany, Easter, Easter, Pentecost, and Pentecost. And at the very earliest church, those were the three that really mattered. And Christmas was way down the road before it started (laughs) featuring as a major one. So, but that, and I think in some ways it may have taken advantage of Epiphany actually, but, but. <laughs> Christmas kind of hijacks a lot of stuff, really. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, like over time, we'll talk about this a little over time. Right. In Western Christianity, Christmas became the Queen Mother, mm-hmm. right? And Epiphany got shunted to a single day, January 6th, though originally it was considered far more important feast day than Christmas. Right. And still for some, January the 6th, Epiphany is seen as the end of the Christmas season. But we'll kind of start with what it's normally seen as today. And usually when we're talking about Epiphany, at least in Protestant and Catholic, the Western Church, you'll hear about the wise men. This is the coming of the wise men to worship Jesus. And so what's being celebrated there is these people who are not Jewish, these outsiders, these people who see the world in a different way, but they are aware who Jesus is, is something unique and special. And so it's kind of cool because this is only in the gospel of Matthew where the wise men show up. It's kind of cool because as in the gospel of Mark, it's not completely apparent who this baby is, who this Jesus is. In Mark, you don't know who Jesus is until his crucifixion. But here in Matthew, there's some people who have a pretty good idea who Jesus is, and they come and they worship him. But these are not Jews. These are not people who even know about the Jewish Messiah promise. None of that. 
And so it's kind of cool because it's like what God is doing in the world is recognized by some people, but they might not be the insiders. They might not be the people that anyone expected. So they are the first witnesses of who Jesus really is. So that's part of the idea of epiphany and epiphany meaning manifestation, Mm -hmm. or I like better because I think manifestation is a big word. How do you use it in a sentence kind of thing? And I would say revealing, revealing Mm -hmm. something of what God is doing in Christ. And so that's what we typically think of today when we think of epiphany. Because I like things Greek, as Carla knows, (laughs) (laughs) that word epiphaneia in Greek comes from the Greek verb phino, which means to show. So epiphino would be an intensified verb to really show, right? Uh, So the (laughs) really, really, really show, really show. So (laughs) epiphany is the showing, the revealing, the manifesting of who Jesus is for all the world. So that's what the word means. And we use epiphany in modern English to say, like a light went on, right? I had an epiphany, mm-hmm. right? which is an interesting way to think of it because because actually we'll discover as we go along that light is one of the symbols that is typically associated with the Christian holiday or holy day of epiphany. So yeah, so that's a little bit about the word. And we probably should just give you a very short version of that complicated story <laughs> <laughs> of this feast day. In liturgics, we use the term feast day for these special days that have been set apart in the Christian calendar. And I think one of the easiest ways of approaching all the different variations there were in the earlier church about what Epiphany was and stood for is to say that all of the things they attached to it had something to do with revealing who Christ is as either God's incarnation, as God with us, things that say something about who Jesus is in God. So there are times in the earlier centuries, Epiphany starting to be recognized by the fourth century. Definitely recognized by the fourth century. That's the 300s. Sometimes we have trouble with the fourth century equals 300s and not 400s. But already in the third century, there's evidence that some Christian groups were doing something related to the celebration or the commemoration of Jesus' baptism early in January. And that's where this day comes from. So there's some places where Epiphany meant celebrating Jesus' baptism. Others, it was about celebrating Jesus' birth. For others, there's a sense of the idea of the Trinity being revealed in who Jesus was. Mm -hmm. So all of these different meanings to it, and sometimes they'd even combine them. So it's like, okay, Epiphany is celebrating both Jesus' baptism and his birth or it's celebrating the wise men and his baptism. So it was like, we need to celebrate something on January 6th. (laughs) January definitely needs a holiday. (laughs) And it's interesting that it's in January, because if you think about it in the Northern Hemisphere, by the time you get to January 6th, the days are just starting to get a little longer. So before there were Christian festivals at that time of year, there were pagan festivals that were celebrating the slow return of light, right? And so one should not be worried that Christians took over a pagan festival. That's a ridiculous thing to worry about. We have borrowed stuff from other people and given our own spin on it. And so also one other thing, sometimes in some ancient Christian traditions, Epiphany was the day they focused on the miracle at Cana too, the turning of water into wine, because it's the first miracle in the Gospel of John, right? So it's another revelation or manifestation of who he is. 
Yeah, lots of meanings attached to this day. And then kind of different meanings in the Western church from the Eastern church. And here, Western church would be the Latin church, the Roman Catholic church, and Protestantism, which comes out of that. And the Eastern church, which is all of the Eastern Orthodox churches, whether that's... Well, now like like Greek, Greek Orthodox, Serbian Armenian, Orthodox, Bulgarian Orthodox, that, they're all separated now. Ukrainian, but, yeah. All of those. Mm-hmm. But they tend to go with the later calendar too. So that's why Christmas for them is January the 7th. And so the 6th, right next to it like that, is a two celebrations right next to each other. And again, the 6th may get kind of a little overshadowed by the 7th, but still <laughs> the idea of the revealing of aspects of who Jesus is and revealing of God in Jesus. And, and mm-hmm. go ahead. Just a, a side note on that is that the idea of the 12 days of Christmas, which mm-hmm. is important, especially in Christian traditions that trace themselves back to England, right? So that's most of American Protestantism in some way or another, where the 12 days of Christmas start on Christmas Day, and then 12th night is January 5th in the evening, and then January 6th is 12th day. And so that whole thing is called Christmas Tide, right? So if you thought you were tired of eating on Christmas Day, Carla, if we celebrated it properly... We would be feasting for a long time, right? <laughs> well, and just very interesting. You talked about your mom wanting that tree down like right now. There actually are some cultures, I think in Eastern Europe, where you don't leave the tree up beyond many days after Christmas because it's bad luck if you leave it up too long, well, probably because it'll burn your house down. But <laughs> but that was, I just thought about what your mom's practice there. There's two things I want to say. One, I will never be tired of feasting. And two, (laughs) mom wanted that tree down because she wanted her living room back. And Ah. I'm pretty sure it would have been bad luck for all of us had we left that tree up. So that's actually true. Go ahead, Tony. So what what if you told mom, not only are we going to leave the tree up, but we're not going to put the wise men in the little nativity until January 6th. And they're going to hang around for a little while. So (laughs) I'm really happy, right? (laughs) Uh, My mother would never handle that well. Never. (laughs) I love her. I love her to bits, but no, no, that does not work in the long household. Wise. So what we have here then is a Christian feast day that multiple meanings in different parts of the ancient world, Western meanings, Eastern meanings. And one thing we know is that definitely by the year 400, December 25th for the Western church had become Christmas day. And then January 6th had become epiphany. We know that was pretty much settled for the Western church by then. The Eastern church kept the January 6th date for Epiphany, but then as it stayed on the Julian calendar, it made January 7th, the actual Christmas day. So, And I think one of the things we need to remember, and this is true in Judaism as well as in Christianity, especially when in time periods where most people were not educated, the festivals were the way of telling the story, were the way of reminding mm-hmm. people what is the story of Jesus? Who is this God? And so applying the important parts of the stories to these festivals was really strategic in helping people to learn, especially who is Jesus in relation to God. And almost all of these festivals are specifically focused on some aspect of Christ revealing God. So we basically covered the very brief history of Epiphany (laughs) and the basic meanings. Probably what's important for us to do is to refocus then on the primary Western meaning, which is to go back to the Magi story in Matthew 
and just reinvestigate it very briefly. And then we want to talk about some images and symbols connected to Epiphany, and then we'll change gears and go into spiritual formation questions connected to Epiphany. So So I think first is just rehearsing the story. The idea being in Gospel of Matthew that at Jesus' birth, a star is seen by... Our word magic comes from that word, but a magos or the magoi in Greek were a cast of astrologers. And in the ancient world, astrology and astronomy were kind of the same thing. And typically, originally, they were of Persian origin, right? So think the distant ancestors of Iranians. And in in the Gospel of Matthew, these these magoi are not numbered. It says magoi from the east came. It's not number. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, Carla, not only are we going to leave the nativity up in your mom's living room for a long time, we're going to add dozens and dozens (laughs) of wise men. (laughs) Well, maybe not dozens. (laughs) Do they even matter if they don't bring presents? I mean, really, why do we remember someone who doesn't even bring a present, honestly? It's a good road trip, though, you know? Sometime in the third century, the Christian Bible scholar origin of Alexandria and later Caesarea, he moved. <laughs> um, he's the one who came up with that. There were three because of the three gifts, but the text doesn't say, it says three gifts, right? But it doesn't say there were three magoi. Right. So, and it's somewhere like in the ninth century or later where people give names to the three of them, but they're not based in the biblical story. So here are these people who know how to read the skies basically. That's part of their religion and their background is they read what's happening in the heavens. And so they see a star and they know that this is auspicious, that it means that someone important has been born. And so they begin their travel and it probably would have taken months, months. So if the star is only seen when Jesus is born, if it only appears then, Jesus is going to be pretty old. He's going to be maybe as much as a year old by the time Mm -hmm. the Magi arrive. Mm -hmm. And so you'll often see it pictured as Jesus like a toddler when the Magi arrive, not still in the manger in swaddling clothes because just would not put (laughs) up with it by this point. And of course, the the story in Matthew, when the, the, the Magi show up in Jerusalem and say, all right, we're looking for this guy. And Herod the Great, who was a miserable, rotten person, when Herod the Great hears that, of course, he's jealous and concerned. And so Herod's order to slaughter infants is all of the infants two years old and younger. So in Bethlehem, in Bethlehem, right? So to use the traditional names as Gaspar, Melchior, and Baltasar's excellent adventure might have taken them a long time to get from the far east to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem. So so that's part of the story then in Matthew. And so they arrive and they bring these over-the-top gifts, frankincense, myrrh, and gold. And whether Jesus' parents were very poor peasantry, or even if they were seen as craftsmen and kind of higher up the social ladder, these were pretty astounding gifts to come because of their child's birth. It's like somebody arriving at your door with a new car, you know, (laughs) (laughs) because you just had a baby. (laughs) It's a bit of a surprise. So in Matthew's gospel, it's very interesting. They present the gifts and it says, now, the NRSV translates, they do obeisance to the child. And the Greek word, means they bow on the knee. But 
this word also it can be translated worship, and some older translations will do that. And it seems like it's a proper word here because it's the exact same word that is used several times in Matthew when the disciples bow the knee, they worship him. And it's also used at the very end of the gospel in chapter 28 when the risen Christ appears to the 11. It says when Jesus appeared, they worshiped him and some doubt it. Same word. And Matthew loves these bookends, right? So you've got Gentile magi at the start of the gospel worshiping. And at the end of the gospel, you've got disciples worshiping who are about to be sent to the Gentiles. So it's a nice bookend to the whole story. They worship the child and they are outsiders. They are not Jewish. They are not part of the covenant. They are Gentiles and they are star God watchers, right? So they're not even, you can't even refer to them as monotheists. They have picked up that something wonderful has happened and they want to honor it. And in Matthew, this is seen as an act of God, of God being recognized both in the star that they follow and then in Christ himself. So it's uh, it's one of those themes in Matthew that what God is doing in Christ is not just for Gentiles, not just for Jews. It's for everyone. Mm-hmm. So that comes through very, very well. So some images and symbols connected with Epiphany, the primary ones, first of all, would be light connected to the star. And in some of these ancient Christian traditions, Epiphany is called Day of the Lights. So uh, that's a lovely term for it. It's, it's a festival that celebrates light. Mm-hmm. And in Northern Hemisphere, that's particularly meaningful after the darkest mm-hmm. days of the year. Another symbol connected with Epiphany is water. And that's because the Eastern tradition still celebrates Christ's baptism on that day. And in some Eastern traditions, the baptismal water is blessed on that day too. Hmm. So um, water is an important symbol for Epiphany. So we've got light and water. And then, of course, gifts and gift giving. (laughs) The Magi's gifts. I mean, that's certainly part of the festival, though we've obviously thrown that back onto Christmas Day in the Western tradition. But so those are key symbols of the day and light, water, things that give life, you know, that's part of what's being symbolized here at Epiphany. I imagine that like a bishop could do something with January 6th as far as the gift giving, you know, because we tended to make the gift giving all about giving gifts to each other. But in effect, the Magi are giving gifts to God to, and so there should be a really good offertory (laughs) for the Sunday closest to Epiphany. I realize you're being a little bit facetious, but I'm listening hard, just so you know. (laughs) It's the ideal opportunity, right? (laughs) Actually, Carla, we're also being directive. (laughs) I'm literally taking notes right now. (laughs) But, you know, it's easy to stay narrow viewed on these things, but what if we back out and take the broader view. Uh, the Magi are symbolic of immigrants right. and refugees. By the way, Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus, infant Jesus, are going to be refugees right away as soon as the Magi are gone. Because God lets them know that Herod is going to try and kill the child. And and again, the wise men, the Magi, also have a dream that tells them to not go back and let Herod know where this baby is. And again, so God is at work with people who are not within this religious tradition. So I think that, again, is the people who are traveling, people who are mm-hmm. are not from these parts. So that's things to think about. Also, the Magi embody in some ways the idea of, with well, single quotes on it, the outsiders mm-hmm. who really get it. Because 
we who are deeply immersed in church life often know that we insiders don't get it. <laughs> but the outsiders sometimes do get it. And so these magi symbolize wise and discerning outsiders who really understand. A great example in the 20th century, Gandhi, right? Gandhi, who really understood the Sermon on the Mount better than lots of Christians did and was able to blend it with his own Hindu traditions for his work in India. So sometimes the outsiders have better lenses for seeing what, see what this Jesus picture. story is about. They yeah. can see the big picture. And that's certainly what was happening here. And then what if we say, oh, you know, water is such an important symbol in Epiphany, but gracious. For baptism. Yeah, for, for baptism, Jesus, and Jesus baptism, and the, the blessing of water and so on in Eastern traditions. But water is an endangered resource in some ways for us. What if Epiphany also recalls us to care for water and to stewardship of the preciousness and sacredness of water. So there's a larger meaning connected here. For goodness sakes, the incarnate one, God the Word enfleshed as Jesus of Nazareth is born, so there's water. He is baptized, so there's water, right? And then washes feet at the end of his life, so there's water. So we have some eco-theology to learn from. You know, Epiphany can, can teach us some eco-theology is what I'm trying to say. It's so. connected with that. So how does Epiphany, or how can it, lead us into conversation with God today. And so that's just a place we wanted to go with it. So if we go with the Magi, with that being the focus of Epiphany, then some questions we might ask ourselves would be, who is the unexpected other who are bringing gifts into my life? Who is bringing that which reveals God, the God of the whole world? Those are a couple of ways of saying, what do the wise men bring us? And in the form of questions. And then where is wisdom before me that I've not recognized or acknowledged because of who it came from? So that's another place to go. Quite often, we don't listen to children and youth, and they often see things in ways we cannot, that we who've been around for a while and are embedded in our lives cannot see. Another question, the wise men's presence meant that in some ways, Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus were in danger. And they knew it's in Matthew, it's Joseph who gets the visions and hears from angels and things like that. But who are those in danger in our time? Who are those who must be on the road in order to live? And again, we go back to asylum seekers and immigrants and refugees. And then what unexpected person makes God's work in the world real and visible each day? Who is making God's compassion real? And around Christmas is a time when we may see more than other times where people are open to the spirit of care for each other, especially those who most need care and who are most invisible. But that's a, a good question to ask us. And due to our world, when we are open to where else God might be at work. So not just within our own <laughs> denomination or religious atmosphere, but who else might know things and have experienced things that will help us to know God better. If we were to go with the birth or baptism of Jesus as the focus of Epiphany, which are like demonstrations of the incarnation, 
and God choosing to be present with us in human form, some questions would be, what does my baptism mean? Who is it I have committed to follow in that act? And this is all about Jesus and Jesus revealing God. What does it mean to follow a God who knows and experienced our trials? You know, here is Jesus, very human, very vulnerable. And then in his baptismal experience, what does it mean that that's what we are entering into? Jesus, who knows about our struggles and our weaknesses and had to face them too. And then as we're thinking about Jesus' baptism, how will I follow? And what a great question to be asking ourselves near the beginning of the year. Mm -hmm. How will I follow Jesus this year? What opportunities are here this year that weren't here last year Mm -hmm. to follow Jesus? And then if we go with another set of meanings connected with Epiphany. Yeah, which we haven't mentioned before. Yeah, just the the miracle at Cana. We just kind of brushed over that earlier, but the water to wine. (laughs) Again, there's water involved, a bunch of stone jars of water, right? That's sometimes been the focus at Epiphany in some Eastern churches. So there's other questions we could ask. Like at the new year, as we raise our glasses with whatever's in them, bubbling whatever, what am I open to seeing God do? So what miracles am I willing to be surprised by in this year? Maybe our carbonated grape juice won't turn into wine, but maybe God's at work doing some other things that we hadn't expected. (laughs) And then what ordinary things in my life am I willing to let God transform into something fine and tasty? (laughs) (laughs) But that whole idea that sometimes our normal life, we get pretty numb to the possibilities, the miraculous power of God's presence in the world. And the idea that somehow this journey with Christ, this taking Christ in and putting Christ on, you know, all these different images from scripture, that this is what eternal life is that we live now. Maybe that's the miracle that our ordinary lives get to be something different, that there's a new dimension to it, these new layers of what life means. And maybe that's where we need to make room for the everyday water of our lives to be turned to Mm -hmm. the wine by Christ's presence at work in us. So basically what we're suggesting is that all of these Christian feast days and holidays and periods within the liturgical calendar, they offer us a chance to have different questions raised for us as part of our discipleship. Rather than just a calendar date we check off, Maybe there's something else that can happen by focusing on them. As we come to the end here, it just should note that for those listeners who are Community of Christ or who attend Community of Christ churches, our hymnal, Community of Christ Sings, actually has an epiphany section in it. It's from hymns 438 to 448. And I'll give you a sample. I mean, some of these hymns are about the Magi, as they should be. This one by Ruth Duck, this is called Not in Grand Estate. And I'll just read the first stanza and the refrain. It's just marvelous. Not in grand estate you make your earthly home, not among the great you come to bring shalom. Living with the poor, you shine, there's the light image, you shine with God's own light. Knock upon our door, find shelter for the night. And the refrain is, Jesus, show the way, your living word has freed us. Come and shine today, Jesus, show us the way, and send your star to lead us. That's a great epiphany hymn, great words to help us think about the day. And so, by the way, in the liturgical calendar, there's epiphany, and then 
it's ordinary time after that. The Sundays are marked, first Sunday after Epiphany and so on, until we get to Ash Wednesday and the start of Lent. So Epiphany can be treated as almost a season if you want to. So just some final thoughts here. I have a little book Charmaine gave me years ago. It's a, it's a collection of some prayers from the great Swiss theologian Karl Barth. And I enjoy reading them. And Karl Barth is a mentor and a hero. I like theologians who stand up to Nazis. <laughs> he was one of them. But he has a couple of prayers for Epiphany, and I've got excerpts from two of them here. Just listen to this. In one of them, he says, Awaken us, give us your light, protect us from hypocrisy, error, boredom, and distraction. <laughs> That's a great prayer all the time, but think of that. First. I feel like he's coming after me, like me <laughs> specifically. I mean, give me a break here, Carl Bart. Gosh. Carl is like, Carl, I feel judged. <laughs> I do. I think he kind of a little tongue-in-cheek, perhaps, there. The excerpt from another of his epiphany prayers goes like this. It says, you loved us first. Do not leave us in lovelessness, in indecisiveness, and in the cold. So Karl Barth, who is Swiss, I mean, you think about being in the Alps uh, in January. Do not leave us in the cold. <laughs> anyway, so what we've done here is we're just trying to, to give an overview, an introduction to epiphany which if the ancient church had mostly had its way, would be the big thing we celebrated this time of year. Mm -hmm. And Christmas would be, what? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> well, this has just been really cool to learn all about the different things around Epiphany and how literally it is just a day that goes unnoticed for most people, most Protestants, at least in the United States. And maybe it's a bigger deal in the Commonwealth. I don't know. It's one of the beauties of the lectionary is that it draws us to our attention and allows us to go a little deeper. Well, if you're right about the Commonwealth, at least in England, we did a little looking earlier today, and there are still such things as 12th night parties mm -hmm. in England. It's a big thing. So there in Dickens, England, right, <laughs> Christmas is a season, not meaning to be critical here, but there's been something maybe not as healthy about jamming the whole Christmas season into Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, where it becomes a stress fest for lots of people. <laughs> the annual festival of stress uh, and, but if we were able to spread it out over the 12 days and then end on Epiphany, it would be a, a different kind of thing. Of course, there would be food the whole way through, I'm just saying. Oh, yeah. But, and no. I always have this little, like, conflict within me because I want to sing Advent songs leading up to Christmas and sing Christmas hymns after Christmas. But after Christmas, I just don't have the Christmas spirit as much anymore. So I really need to work hard to continue that, to just sing those Christmas hymns yeah. all the way to Epiphany and then sing those a wonderful Epiphany hymns after that. And thank God we don't have a Super Bowl hymns section, which is usually <laughs> what happens in January in the United States after Epiphany. Everything heads towards the next festival, which is Super Bowl Sunday, I guess. The season of Super Bowl. Absolutely. Uh, yes. Um, well, thank you so much, you two. I really appreciated this. I learned a lot as usual, and I hope that you have a wonderful epiphany. Uh, and you too. Thanks, Carla. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Project Zion Podcast is a ministry of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines. Music